Hello, and welcome to Curious Appetite. Thank you for joining. I'm your host, Nola Mann, and we're going to take a little journey to the origin of some of your favorite foods. Today's item, popcorn. Popcorn is almost the perfect snack. It can be low-calorie, or you can throw your diet aside and dress it up. But just how far back does popcorn go? Now, corn was domesticated about 10,000 years ago in what is now Mexico. And archaeologists discovered that people have known about popcorn for thousands of years. In fact, there's fossil evidence from Peru that suggests that corn was popped as early as 4700 BC. Back then, and through much of history, it was popped over an open fire. Popcorn was integral to early 16th century Aztec Indian ceremonies. In 1519, Cortes got his first sight of popcorn when he invaded Mexico and came into contact with the Aztecs. Popcorn was an important food for the Aztec Indians, who also used popcorn as decoration for ceremonial headdresses, necklaces, and ornaments on the statues of their gods. Through the 19th century, popping of the kernels was achieved by hand on stovetops. Kernels were sold on the east coast of the U.S. under names such as pearls or nonpareil. In America, the term popped corn first appeared in John Russell Bartlett's 1848 Dictionary of Americanisms. But before we get to the modern era of today's popcorn, let's talk a bit about the plant itself. There are six types of corn, and within each type are hundreds of varieties. But popcorn is a specific variety called Z. Mays Averta. Popcorn is grown mostly in the Midwest states, referred to as the Corn Belt. And at least six towns, all of course in the Midwest, claim to be the popcorn capital of the world. Now, according to the USDA, popcorn specifically is grown mostly in Nebraska and Indiana. Technically, if you eat fresh corn or sweet corn, one of the six types, it is a vegetable. But if you have a variety that is dried on the stalk and then harvested for feed or ground into flour or popcorn, it is now considered a grain. In the popcorn industry, a popped kernel of corn is known as a flake. Two shapes of flakes are commercially important. The butterfly or snowflake, which those flakes are irregular in shape and have a number of protruding wings, and the mushroom flakes, which are largely ball-shaped with few wings. Now, the butterfly flakes are regarded as having better mouthfeel with greater tenderness and less of those noticeable holes. The mushroom flakes are less fragile than butterfly flakes and are therefore often used for packaged popcorn or confectionery such as caramel corn, which we'll get into later. The kernels from a single cob of popcorn may form both butterfly and mushroom flakes, hybrids that produce 100% butterfly flakes, or 100% mushroom flakes exist, but those have only been recently developed. We now have popcorn, but how are we going to pop it? Enter Charles Creeters. Charles Creeters was originally from Lebanon, Ohio, but eventually made his way to Decatur, Illinois, where he opened a bakery and eventually a confectionery shop. He purchases a peanut roaster made in Oskaloosa, Indiana, and dissatisfied with this peanut roaster, he sells everything and moves to Chicago to build a better machine, which includes a steam engine to drive it. 
So he draws attention to both the roaster and the product, and a small mechanical clown figurine is named Toasty Roasty that turns a tumbler filled with peanuts. You guys have probably even seen this before. Now, the new roaster was driven by a small steam engine, which automatically created the roasting process. And by 1893, Creators had created a steam-powered machine that could roast peanuts as well as popcorn in oil. And the Creators machine design offered several advantages over the hand-operated ones that were out there in the market. The machine became the first automated one that could pop the popcorn uniformly in its own seasoning. And as a result, the product was consistently finished every time. So he applies for and receives a patent on his automated peanut roaster and popcorn maker. Now, the first popcorn machines had long legs and were small enough to be moved around easily in and out of streets where passing customers could see them. And by the early 1890s, the popcorn wagon with its large wheels had evolved. The popcorn vending wagon permitted the operator to take his machinery wherever the business was. Now, the first major event to see Creator's popcorn wagon was the 1893 Columbian Exposition in Chicago, which most people refer to as the World's Fair. At first, the new confection didn't really sell well, and people were not inclined to spend their money on this so-called experiment. So this led Charles Creeter to give away the popcorn for free and start creating a new batch. And the wonderful aroma of the freshly popped corn and the animation of the steam engine and the clown kept people in line to get the new popcorn and to see the machine. Eventually the machine starts to sell and it does really well. And in fact, it's been selling great ever since and is still owned by the Creeter's family. Nearly every movie house in America at one time or another has popped its popcorn from a Creator's machine. So next time you're out and see a popcorn machine, take a look at the brand name. Good chance it's going to be a Creator's. Now that is one of many stories that interconnects Chicago and popcorn. Chicago and its state, Illinois, love popcorn. In fact, as a result of an elementary school project, popcorn became the state's official snack food. Now, akin to popcorn is kettle corn. And kettle corn also has a storied history. It dates back to the 18th century, and it was first documented appearance originating in Europe. European farmers would cook corn in large cast iron kettles over an open fire, and both lard and sugar were added while the popcorn was cooking, resulting in the sweet snack that was often eaten at the end of the day. And thanks to the sugar in the kettle corn, it was discovered that the kettle corn popcorn had a really good shelf life. So German and European immigrants brought the sweet treat to America in around the mid to late 1700s. In America, this snack was first referenced in the diaries of Dutch immigrants who settled in the Pennsylvania area. Kettle corn at this time was also made in Dutch ovens in addition to the cast iron kettles. During this time, kettle corn was much like it is today, and it was sold during festive occasions such as fairs and festivals. Sometimes kettle corn was sweetened with honey rather than sugar. In the early to mid-19th century, kettle corn was hugely popular in America. However, it saw really a lapse in widespread popularity in the 1900s. Nevertheless, kettle corn made its comeback in the 2000s, particularly at historical reenactments of civil war and 
your local farmer's market. Now, my favorite kettle corn is Casey's kettle corn from a company called Harvey's Butter Rum Batter. Harvey's is based out of Bremerton, Washington, and supplies the bar industry with their signature line of butter rum batter since 1952 when Harvey Hudson came up with the recipe. Now, Harvey was passionate about his business and his customers until 2011, when unfortunately he passed away at the age of 94. Stacy Ryan buys the company shortly after his passing, and she then expands it into the toffee popcorn and then eventually in 2016 purchases Casey's Kettle Corn. And that's that large mushroom-shaped popcorn that we referenced earlier, wonderfully coated with all natural ingredients. Now, Garrett Popcorn is another tie-in to Chicago. Garrett is known for their flavored popcorns, especially its caramel crisp Gladys Garrett, another woman entrepreneur, opened up for business in Chicago in 1949, but the recipe that launched the brand was born in Milwaukee, the result of a family competition to see who could make the tastiest caramel corn. In addition to caramel crisp, they also had cheese corn, buttery, and plain. The great taste, quality ingredients, and welcoming experience in the stores quickly made Garrett Popcorn Shops a fan-adored Chicago staple. Meanwhile, customers started doing a little mixing of their own. And by the 1970s, it was customary for regulars to order a bag of cheese corn and a bag of caramel crisp and a third empty bag so that they could toss the two together to create the perfect sweet-savory fix. Eventually, it was put on the menu and called the Chicago Mix. In 2002, Oprah Winfrey helped launch the Garrett Mix to international fame when she named it one of her favorite things and went on to do it for multiple years. But the afternoon of that first broadcast, Garrett had over 100,000 web hits and its sales volume for the month doubled. Another caramel corn classic is Cracker Jack. A German immigrant named Frederick Fritz William Ruchheim invented Cracker Jack, a snack consisting of molasses-flavored caramel-coated popcorn and peanuts. Now, Rukheim came to Chicago in 1872 to help clean up after the famous Chicago fire. Yes, back to Chicago. He also was working selling popcorn from a stand. Now, together with his brother, Louis Rukheim, experimented and came up with a delightful popcorn candy, which the brothers decided to mass market, and they introduced it at the Chicago Columbian Exposition in 1893, the same time Creators was there with his popping machine. Then in 1899, the Rukheim brothers partner with Henry Eckstein to develop the wax-sealed package that they used to put the Cracker Jack in because it was all sticky and gooey. So in 1902, the company was reorganized as Rukheim Brothers and Eckstein Company. Now, Cracker Jack's mascots, the Sailor Jack and the dog Bingo, were introduced in 1960. Now, Sailor Jack was modeled after Robert Rukheim, the grandson of Frederick, who died of pneumonia at the age of eight shortly after his image appeared on the boxes of Cracker Jack. That sailor boy image had such meaning to the founder of Cracker Jack that he had it carved on his tombstone, which is in St. Henry's Cemetery in Chicago. 
Now, Sailor Jack's dog Bingo was based on a real dog named Russell, a stray adopted in 1917 by Henry Eckstein, and he demanded that the dog be used on the packaging. Legend has it that the name Cracker Jack came from a customer who, upon trying the treat, exclaimed, That's a Cracker Jack! Now, the Take Me Out to the Ball Game, which was written in 1908, contains a reference to Cracker Jack, right? Take me out to the ball game, buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jack. You would have thought that the Rukheim brothers had, like, contracted with them to write this. No, they just put it in the people who actually wrote it, it became popular and then eventually starts being sung at games. Think of the price of all that free advertising. It wasn't until 1912 that toy surprises were first put into Cracker Jack. Now, Cracker Jack's tagline, the more you eat, the more you want. Now, during the Great Depression, popcorn was fairly inexpensive at five to 10 cents a bag and became popular. Thus, while other businesses failed, the popcorn business thrived and became a source of income for many struggling farmers. During this time, Orville Redenbacher grew up in Clay County, Indiana, earning money by selling popcorn planted on the family farm. So he saves his money and he rolls in Purdue University. After earning a degree in agriculture, he worked as a teacher and county extension agent for almost a decade before being hired in January of 1940 as manager of Princeton Farms, then the state's largest farm with over 12,000 acres in crops and cattle. In the late 1950s, Redenbarker was given an ultimatum by his bosses at Princeton Farms. He could either quit or be fired. The reason? Redenbacher deposited a check from a tenant farmer into his personal account. He got caught. He does return the money, but he loses his job. Redenbacher would then team with a partner in 1951 to buy a small seed company in Villa Paraiso, where Redenbacher would invent the fluffy popcorn hybrid that would bear his name. The hybrid was originally called Redbow, and in 1970, Orville Redenbacher hired a firm and paid them $13,000 to come up with a new name for his company. What did they come back and tell him? You should call it by your name. And so in 1970, the Orville Redenbacher popcorn brand was launched. After a number of years, Redenbacher agrees to sell his popcorn brand to a division of the former food giant Hunt Wesson. Now, Hunt Wesson eventually took full control of the popcorn business, paying $4 million for it. And the other thing that proved priceless was the right to the Orville Redenbacher name. Now, Redenbacher agrees to appear in TV commercials for the popcorn until his death in 1995 at the age of 88. Now, the popular TV spots usually featured him, you know, in his trademark bow tie, and he was out there. He was such a PR kind of guy, and the crowd and the audience ratings went up, and it absolutely drove the sales of the product, so much so that Orville Redenbacher has a 34% share of the U.S. market, and the total sales of the Redenbacher brand over the last year was over $360 million. Not a bad investment of $4 million. It is still so popular that about a third of the 60 to 70,000 acres planted with popcorn in Indiana every year are grown for the Orville Redenbacher brand.
And to finish up this episode, I want to talk about the connection between popcorn and the movies. Why is it that of all the snacks, popcorn is most associated with watching a movie, especially in the theater? So let's go back to Creators and the creation of the popcorn wagon. The mobile nature of the machine made it the perfect production machine for serving patrons attending outdoor sporting events or circuses and fairs. Not only was popcorn mobile, but it could be mass-produced without a kitchen. Another reason for its dominance over other snacks was its appealing aroma when popped, something that street vendors used to their advantage when selling popcorn. Still, movie theaters wouldn't allow the popular street snack into their auditoriums. See, movie theaters wanted nothing to do with popcorn because they were trying to duplicate what had been done in real theaters. They had beautiful carpets and rugs, and they didn't want popcorn being ground into it. Movie theaters were trying to appeal to a highbrow clientele and didn't want to deal with the distracting trash of concessions or the distracting noise that snacking during a silent film would create. So when films added sound in 1927, the movie theater industry opened itself up to a much wider clientele, since literacy was no longer required to attend films. By 1930, attendance to movie theaters had reached 90 million a week. So such a huge patronage created larger possibilities for profits, especially since the sound pictures now muffled snacks, but theater owners still were hesitant to bring the snacks inside their theaters. The Great Depression presented an excellent opportunity for both the movies and popcorn. Looking for a cheap diversion, audiences flocked to the movies. And at 5 to 10 cents a bag, popcorn was a luxury that most people were able to afford. Popcorn kernels themselves were a cheap investment. At $10 a bag, it could last for years. If those inside the theaters couldn't see the financial lure of popcorn, enterprising street vendors didn't miss a beat. They bought their own popping machines and sold popcorn outside the theaters to moviegoers before they entered the theater. There's even examples of early movie theaters literally having signs hung outside their coat rooms requesting that patrons check their popcorn with their coats. Now, early movie theaters weren't built to accommodate the first popcorn machines. The theaters lacked the proper ventilation. But as more and more customers came to the theater with popcorn in hand, owners couldn't ignore the financial appeal of selling the snack. So they leased lobby privileges to the vendors, allowing them to sell their popcorn in the lobby of their theater, or more likely leasing a bit of the street in front of the theater for a daily fee. Now, vendors didn't complain about this arrangement. Selling popcorn outside the theater widened their business potential as they could sell to both moviegoer and people on the street. Eventually, movie theater owners realized that if they cut out the middleman, their profits would skyrocket. For many theaters, the transition to selling snacks helped save them from the crippling depression. In the mid-1930s, the movie theater business started to go under. But those that began serving popcorn and other snacks, well, they survived. World War II further solidified the marriage between popcorn and the movie theaters. Competing snacks like candy and soda suffered from sugar shortages, and in turn rationing as traditional sugar exporters like the Philippines were cut off from the United States. 
by 1945, popcorn and the movies were inextricably bound. Over half of the popcorn consumed in America was eaten at the movie theaters. Theaters began pushing advertisements for their concessions harder, debuting commercials that played before and even sometimes in the middle of movies that enticed audiences to check out the snacks in the lobby. Of course, you all probably have heard the famous of these called Let's All Go to the Lobby, a 40-second advertisement that debuted in 1957 and still plays today. But the relationship between popcorn and the movies has changed more than the smell of a theater lobby or the at-home movie night. It's changed the popcorn industry itself. You see, before the Great Depression, most popcorn sold was the white corn variety. Yellow corn wasn't widely commercially grown and cost twice as much as the white kind. So movie vendors, however, preferred the yellow corn, which expanded more when it's popped. So it creates more volume, i.e. less product, and had a yellowish tinge that gave the impression of a coating of butter. People became accustomed to the yellow popcorn and would refuse to buy the white variety in stores, requesting the kind that looked like the popcorn at the movies. Regardless, Americans loved their popcorn. Outside? Inside, at the movies, or in their homes, Americans consume 14 billions, with a B, quarts of popped popcorn each year. For those of you listening on Spotify, I encourage you to enter your response to the question, what food would you like to know the origin of? Hopefully I can do an episode on your choice. So that's it for this episode of Curious Appetite. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm Nola Man, and until next time, stay hungry.